This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. Welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. My name is Nick Glimsdahl and my guest this week is Neil Hoyne. Neil is the Chief Measurement Strategist at Google, a Senior Fellow at Wharton, and the author of Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. Neil has served as an analyst, researcher, inventor, lecturer, and in his words, the father of many forgettable slides of glossy funnels and Venn diagrams, which is awesome. Uh, Neil, welcome to the Breast One for Nick podcast. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. You bet. So the one question I ask every single guest at the very beginning is, what's one thing people might not know about you? You know, I'll tell you this, I, I don't have a background as an analyst or anything quantitative. My, my background primarily, I did spend some time admittedly in college in computer science. A vast majority of my time has just been in, in core marketing and entrepreneurship in those types of areas, which I bring up generally because when a lot of people think about the content, they think about the fact that I work in measurement, they think I'm one of those number guys when really I'm more of a storyteller. And so we'll get into it, but a lot of the things that people are surprised about is that my strengths are more in connecting dots and connecting stories around interesting insights than they are around the actual core research that a lot of people find dry and I'd say almost intimidating. (laughs) I think that is amazing. So converted the data-driven way to win customers' hearts is awesome, and I highly recommend. Thank you. And you'll you'll know the reason why from my listeners as we go through the rest of this this episode, but I would recommend anybody to pick it up because it is, it, it talks about the data, but it also talks about the story, storytelling. And I want to get into storytelling in a little bit, but before I do, you know, the first question I had for you is what's the difference between the behavioral attributes and the personas? Because it's kind of everybody, a lot of organizations talk about the personas and let's build a persona. Let's do a journey map based off of personas. But what's the difference between those two? You know, it admittedly starting to talk about the storytelling side, this almost feels like I'm taking a step back from it because personas make fantastic stories. And you see this with companies all the time. It's like, who's our customer? Our customer is, is, you know, this person, they're 30 to 32. They love going to Starbucks in the morning and then they go to yoga class and it makes it, it makes it very vivid and very creative. One of the concerns that I have around personas, though, is that you take large groups of people and you just classify them and say, because you're this age, you're going to behave in this way. Because you grew up in this neighborhood, these are your wants and your desires. And that's just, it's not a bad way to do things, but you can do so much better. Um, So I, I generally look at personas as what marketers will do when you think about CPG products. You don't have enough understanding as to what's driving someone to target to buy a product. But when we start talking about digital advertising and digital marketing, you have that granular detail of what they're doing on the site. And when you look at the way that people behave over just simply who they are and what bucket they fall into, you get a lot more data that you can act on. You say, well, people are actually interested in these products. You're not going to infer they're interested because they're between the ages of 18 to 24. And so generally the way that I look at it is personas are nice. If that's what you have and that's what you're building from, great. Don't get tied to them. 
don't use them as a be-all, end-all of understanding your customer base. And instead, wherever possible, look at what customers are doing on their own and the differences between those behaviors uh, just because it leads to better results. I love that. I love the difference between those two. Based off the behavior, do customers behave different than they say that what they want? And what I mean, oh, what I mean by that is like always. Let yeah, right. No, so so you are you already know what I'm saying. So go ahead. <laughs> that's that's people. Uh, when we and this is this is kind of the difficulty that you just have with data collection. And there was a a question I remember with the the Google Surveys product back in the day. If you haven't come across, it's just a panel based survey. They ask people questions and they give people money for it. And every now and then they wanted to run calibration questions just to make sure that people weren't hey just clicking any random answer. Um, just to get past the process. And what their, their question was very simple. It was, what color was the red ball? And 25, 26% of people got it incorrect. Wow. Uh, and again, just sloppy, you know, maybe, maybe they didn't know. <laughs> maybe they were just clicking anything. You see this when marketers sometimes use it to judge effectiveness where they'll have on their, their, their page, they'll have like a checkout question. They'll say, uh, you know, how did you hear? about our particular program. And generally they'll have, you know, a, a dummy variable. They'll say, oh, TV, but we don't run a TV campaign, but still they'll find 30% of their audience. We'll put that information in. It wow. just happens. That's the reality of data collection. Yeah. So based off of that though, is the human behavior predictable? Because you, you kind of said that it's, it, the behavior is potentially predictable, but the, what they say is not. That it's, it's generally, it's what I would say is when you're watching what people do, uh, that's a strong indicator because people, when they're generally taking those actions, when you ask people to self-report and indicate the reason for their decision-making, the reason for their actions, their underlying motivations, sometimes those are unclear to them. Uh, it's unclear to them as to why they made a decision in the way what's really important for them uh, or also how to consider or weight other alternatives. So just thinking about this, I own, uh, I own an electric car now and when you look at the car buying journey, and this is something I was curious about just because we work with a lot of automakers, you know, generally people will rate their primary attributes. And for me, uh, you know, reliability on the vehicle was top. Nobody likes to be on the side of the road. Nobody likes to go to a repair shop. And arguably when I bought an EV, I won't point out who the manufacturer was, but they consistently rank on the bottom of quality. But the reason I purchased their car was just that I found it to be a superior experience once I actually tried that product. And so the general takeaway from there is that how consumers report and what they think their interests are, uh, are always different than how they behave. And so the closer you can get to those actual behaviors and then kind of back into it to say, well, what, what changed versus their initial expectations is going to be better than just taking their word for it. But taking their word for it is so easy. Just to ask them, say, what did you like the most about this? What do you like the worst? Where should we price uh, oftentimes you just have to have a little bit of that, a little bit of that test and then understand mentality. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you're more willing to pay more for a better experience than you are for potentially quality, you know? So, but when it comes to the customer in, in, uh, in the book at the very beginning, you talk about how you should embrace your irrationality when working with the customer or interacting with the customer. Tell, tell me more about that. It's it's just because we're human, uh, and so well, let let's give. To, I'll give you a practical example here. Uh, generally, when you ask people and you say, "Well, what what are important characteristics of your product?" When you do market research, price will come in. 
and say, boy, price is an important component. I don't want to pay too much. I want to pay a great price. That is a primary driver. But we don't necessarily understand how we perceive the relationship between price and quality of the product. Uh, one of the more interesting cases was early on the exercise bike Peloton uh, was actually priced about 50% less than where it ended up being in its mass market adoption. I think it was initially priced somewhere around $1,200 US. And the perception in the market was, how can you possibly build a quality bike for that price in that category? It should be at least 2000 So people thought they were getting an inferior product, and it wasn't until they doubled the price to their near close to $2,400, $2,500 that sales actually took off because then it was in alignment with what consumers expected to see. And the, the marketing world is littered with these pricing examples where people effectively doubled or tripled their prices for the same quality product, but all of a sudden in the consumer's mind, that made sense. And we think about that to be like, well, that's, that's counter. Remember, remember when we used to do in, in, in basic econ classes, you used to have that little chart where it used to be like, and demand goes up or down based on the price. And if you want to create a larger market, you decrease your price. And then Apple comes out and is like, hey, we're going we're gonna to charge $200 for wireless, you know, wireless headphones that you could get technically for $30 of similar quality on Amazon and be like, wow, these must be the best headphones ever. And it's just because we are also looking for that story internally where we're making all these trade-offs, which are not exactly clear to us as to how we're balancing them. The world's greatest headphones for $200 that just happened to be $30 headphones that that's, cost $5 to make. That's, that's, that's the interesting thing. And I, I say this to people that are building brands uh, and <laughs> going off topic, but I'm going to do it anyways. Good. Yeah. One, of, one of the largest things that, that people uh, are challenged on when I talk to people about brand building is that they invest all this money in brand, but I'm very clear to them that they have to have the expectations of being able to capitalize and reap the rewards of that brand. And Apple's the most aggressive and arguably the most successful at doing so. They build a fantastic brand and it could have been easy for them to sit around the table to say, all right, we have new headphones. What's the average market price? $30. Okay, where should we price ours? Well, we think ours are a little bit better and we have a good brand. Let's price it at 50. Apple is the only company that has the audacity to say, no, $200 for the headphones, <laughs> which they then recover. And then they then dump more into branding and to marketing into their products to further reinforce their brand. And it's just phenomenal to see how this plays into effect. And then you meet with companies that idolize a strategy. You say, all right, you have your new headphones. Where are you going to price them? Uh, $35, just a little bit uh, higher. We certainly They're can't superior. go 200. Thirty-eight ninety-nine, yeah, thirty-eight, And there's, there's just that gap where they can't take that leap to say you actually need to price in line with what consumer expectations are and where you might be able to capitalize uh, on actually getting people to pay. Yeah, so your your book retails for twenty seven dollars. I fully expect <laughs> in the in the coming years the Rev two to be eighty seven ninety five. That's uh, that was one of my, one of my questions. But when I was thinking about self publishing, the title was honestly, I was like, look, let's just price it at a hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> why why not? And because we had there were the same types of debates. Now, uh, in a full disclaimer, it's, uh, as I mentioned to you, Nick, earlier, uh, all the proceeds from the book are being donated to to food pantries. So there's not a personal profit motive, but there was just kind of that curiosity on my side to say, if you see a book that is twenty dollars versus a book that's a hundred dollars, arguably you still have a smaller audience because there's not everyone that's willing to make that commitment. But would people look at the value of the book, or the value of the research inside, and say? that must be more valuable. It's similar to like, you can pay someone $10 an hour for marketing advice or $1,000 per hour for marketing advice. Would people see that the, the more expensive uh, 
person is providing better advice if it's still highly subjective. Uh, that was a test. Unfortunately, Penguin would not allow me to run with the book. I don't think the book <laughs> publishing industry, they have some great historical data. I don't know how many tests they do because really, if you get that test wrong, here's a whole two-year project that's just kind of in trouble uh, just because you wanted to see how consumers respond to different prices. Yeah, since we're off the rails already, what when it comes to Apple or when it comes to that $1,000 per hour for the marketing person, how much more are they attentive, attentively and focused on that? what that person is saying because of the cost of the product or service versus a, a, a one that's at a typical price? Let's say it's a $85 an hour and one in, in, a, in a still a solid company, but doesn't have that, that price tag. You know, I, I think everything just co- collectively adds to the consumer perception of it, whether it's price or scarcity is what we often see, how many products are left. And as I, as I kind of joke around in the text of the book, when you go to travel sites and they'll, they'll say for hotel rooms, they'll say only, only five rooms left or only one room left. And, and you're looking at, and then they tell you there's like and 20 people looking at this hotel right now. And so you feel compelled to act. And what they don't disclose is the fact that uh, you know, those 20 people are likely looking at different dates. So they are looking at the hotel. They're very careful in the language. They don't want to be misleading, but they're not saying that they're looking at this date range, which only has one room left. We take the same things in terms of uh, social proof, the number of people that rate or review products, how they review those products. I think everything just collectively adds up to how people interpret uh, these different signals. But very much with, you know, the relationships that we end in with, end up in in real life, if you were to go through and be like, let's draw out. And people do these exercises. They always confuse me. Like, here's the ideal partner for me, right? So can they come out someone that can make me laugh and somebody that makes a lot of money. And they may have certain conditions that they're unwilling to sacrifice on, whether it's, you know, lifestyle or religion or whatever they happen to be. But it's very hard past that to get people to define how they really feel about certain things. And the real takeaway from this is there are not only to recognize that these factors exist, that companies should explore them to say, this is not a pure, if you drive price down, volume goes up uh, proposition, but also to be infinitely curious about the ways that consumers respond. And generally what we find is that when you challenge somebody on fundamental beliefs about how things work in the world, what their response is, is they become more open to alternatives. And that's really what a lot of the book is about, is just to say, well, what if you think about things in a slightly different way with the goal of just creating enough space so that marketers, students, business leaders say, what if we, what if we did something different? And, and, and part of this actually ties back to an interesting research project from a couple of years ago where they looked at executives and they, they asked them to make a decision. I think it was in, in the test, it was about going into a new market or not. And they just said, look, if you had to make like a gut feeling today, what, what are you going to do? And, and they all wrote down their answers. You know, some would go in, some wouldn't. And then what they did was they provided these participants over the next week or so with new information. And in some cases, it reinforced the decision that they already made. In other cases, it designed to directly challenge to say you shouldn't go ahead. And still, even in the case when they challenged their original decision, they found out that more than 80% of the executives still made their original decision. So it's like they, they tried. They're like, no, here's all the evidence that says what you're thinking about is wrong. <laughs> and they still made it. And the only way that they found to actually crack that was early on in the process. 
They made it clear to them, not through the data, not through the evidence, but they availed to them to say, these are the biases that people have. And so they said early on when they sat down, they said, look, just to let you know, uh, you're going to make these cognitive mistakes while you're evaluating this deal. And they found that that actually allowed those people to take a step back in which they did question and were more uh, open to the new data and the new information. And so taking that forward, what we're really saying just to everybody out there is to say, there's so much more we need to learn about people. This is where we're going to start. And hopefully by setting it up that way, they're open to some of these ideas to say people buy in weird ways. They do bizarre things, but we can understand and we can become better at marketing and communicating with them, at least if we're open to it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I do love your book is that it gets you to think outside of the box a little bit based off of the data that you provide and how it focuses back on customers and how it focuses back on the right metrics. And one of the metrics that I think that you and I both truly enjoy is customer lifetime value. And so what makes that the indispensable measurement for, for marketers? I just like it because it allows you to consider more than the short term. So for the listeners out there, if you're new to customer lifetime value, and let's, we'll just be explicit about it. It is a forward-looking prediction at the individual customer level for how great that customer is going to be, what type of value they're going to drive back to your business. And I look at it very much in a, a personal relationship context. It's like kind of having someone looking over your shoulder saying, these people are going to be great in your life and these people you should probably stay away from. It's kind of, but it's also really accurate and you can scale it across millions of customers. And then the reason why I like it is simply because when you look at short-term sales, it won't reflect things that you're doing long-term, keeping customers around, customer retention, building a brand, uh, because it only reflects, did they buy right away? So it's kind of like you have a really great conversation with a customer. They're really happy with their product. They're going to come back later. But if you're only looking at short-term sales and say, did they buy right away? No. No. Well, was that wasted? And no, you know it's not, but you need something like lifetime value that's more forward-looking to measure it. And the other reason is that I like to think that it's a little bit less subject to manipulation. Uh, so I oftentimes will see companies, especially those that are publicly traded that are behind on their numbers and saying, hey, we need to boost new customer acquisition numbers or we need to boost sales numbers. And they offer a whole bunch of short-term promotions, things that are simply front-loading sales that would have occurred otherwise. And so you're always kind of wondering, well, what's the downstream impact if we're giving aggressive promotions are we just, are we depriving the next quarter of sales? Are we conditioning people to wait for the big sales and the big promotions? And so what we're doing with lifetime values, we're taking a step back and we're saying, no, by looking at the entire lifetime of the customer, the goodness of that customer, we get a more accurate sense as to if our business is successful or not. Yeah. It's not just focusing on the, the front end acquisition. It's focusing on the overall acquisition of that customer. It's, it's retaining it's adding value and it's expanding your portfolio for the right reasons at the right time. And, and just the, the biggest warning on it is to do it the right way. And, and so that's why I was very deliberate about the language. In fact, this ties to your question about the, the personas is that a lot of people make the mistake with lifetime value. And this is kind of the key word I listen for in conversations. I was like, do you, are you working with lifetime value? Oh yeah, we, we are. We are. Okay. What have you found? And, and they're like, well, we find that the average customer does spends $500 with us. And right then, when they say that average term, you know what you've walked into. It's the same thing. Be like, well, what do we find? Well, we find that our, our customer is between 18 and 25 and like Starbucks. It's the exact same thing. It's that they're grouping the individual customer behaviors in such a large aggregate. So as long as you're doing it at the individual level, uh, you're going to be in great shape to use it. 
But if you do it in just the aggregate and you say, hey, this is how much all of our customers are going to spend, you lose that nuance that's so important. In a competitive market, does your customer service stand out from the crowd? One way to offer a better experience is by moving your contact center to the cloud. But with so many options to choose from, how do you know which solution is the best for both your business and your customers? That's where VDS comes in and guides you to the best solution. They understand your clients' pain points, business outcomes, and goals. Then VDS designs, implements, supports, and provides 24-7 managed services. From start to finish, VDS is committed to finding the best solutions for your clients' needs. To learn more, go to www.govds.com or find a link in the show notes. And it's so vague. It's not, it's not measurable. You're saying, here's the general goodish data that I'm providing, not, not what is this organization, what is this department, what is this specific person doing, and how do I provide ways to do do things for them at the right way at the right time. And I think you mentioned um, bringing on retention with retention. It's, it's focusing on lifetime value. You're continuing to find ways to, to do it better and add value. So what are organizations, which, which companies are doing it well and why are they, how are they doing it better than others? I would say that companies that were primarily, uh, I say app-driven, subscription-based companies, mobile gaming companies, where it was part of their core business model. So for instance, mobile gaming companies can't rely on how much money they make from buying the game because they look at ongoing revenues uh, and ongoing revenue streams. And also happens, mobile gaming companies can calculate lifetime value faster than almost any vertical I've seen. Generally about 14 days worth of data, they can predict three to five years with incredibly high accuracy. So they have a little bit of a cheat code, if you will, to borrow from their own industry. Um, Subscription-based businesses, it's not enough to say, well, you're going to buy one subscription at $10. You really want to understand how long those customers are going to stay. Uh, wireless phone companies, same category, recurring revenues, they're certainly more advanced. Uh, laggards are just people that look at more pure transactional businesses, retail, uh, travel to a certain extent. Uh, those are companies where it was just enough for them to optimize to the short-term transactions. But now they're really looking at these other industries to say, well, what are you learning? Uh, in the mobile gaming sector, what are you learning are best practices for re-engaging people over time, for bringing them back in, for tweaking your business model to optimize towards revenue? They're starting to become open to that, um, which I think is good. Now, I will mention that compared to other types of technology, like people implementing a new cloud or CRM platform, there is significantly less buzz externally about lifetime value success stories. And the reason is there's just no, there's no reason for companies to kind of tip their hand for their competitors to say, hey, you're all bidding on short-term transactions. I'm going to be bidding for the best customers in our vertical. Because right now, it, I mean, you forget for, for online marketing sometimes that we're in an auction type scenario, which means whatever company has the best information theoretically will win that auction because they'll be able to connect and bid more effectively. And if you're competing against someone that's all bidding on short-term transactions where all customers are effectively equal, you just care about how much they spend today. And you can take a step back and say, no, 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 I'm going to bid for the best customers over time who are going to come back to me more often, spend more money. And I'm going to leave you with everybody I don't want to take. And that's a pretty powerful strategy, but you sure as hell don't want to tell them, be like, hey, so enjoy enjoy all those poor customers. I'm going to be over here in the corner. But as like we talk about in the book, that's exactly what Amazon did. 
And that was their strategy was to go in to say, look, we're going to grab all the high value customers. We're going to do whatever we can to lock them in. And then we're going to let the entire market try to figure out why they're not able to get as many short-term transactions as we're focusing on those longer-term relationships. And along the way, they're reducing effort and they're guiding you to that solution with the right information. They're not hawking technology. I always like to say they're opening up their black leather jacket and saying, which product and service you want? I have it at the cheapest and it's the best (laughs) and I'm going to implement it at the right time. And you're like, wait a second, like you don't even know my first name, let alone what my pain point is and how, how you're going to solve it in the future and how that aligns to my business outcomes. And like, they're just hawking technology. And I think that's a lot of the difference between the organizations. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about those short-term metrics, going back to that question around, you know, where the opportunity is for lifetime value and why it's so important is that if you're sitting there from a marketer lens and your primary KPI is revenue or new customer growth, then, then you're going to pound those levers pretty hard. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best customer experience. It means, hey, we're behind on sales. Send out more emails, offer more coupon codes, throw more products at the customer, anything to get them to buy just to hope you stay on track. But that could be a poor experience. They may never come back. Uh, you may have a CRM database where, and I have this on some sites, where if you're offering me 10%, 20% off for giving you an email address as a new customer, I can come up with so many email addresses for you. You know, and now your CRM, your, your CRM metrics are off. Or if you look at those retention rate, your retention rates are going to be terrible because now you're going to have 40 email addresses from me and 39 of them aren't going to come back again or maybe all 40 and I'll suddenly become a 41st customer. And it, when you think about it, just from a relationship side, it seems like a really bizarre way to do business. I think the only thing that's been carrying it forward is simply momentum. It's what everyone's been doing. And now you see that slowly shifting where there's almost a disruption in the industry where people are saying, no, 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 we're going to get off this train. We're going to get ahead of everybody else. And that's going to leave a lot of these players who are just transaction focused, really struggling and grasping at their customers going forward. Yeah. I think we can just have a, a conversation just on that specific topic. Uh, it it's seems like stuff. a brand. It fun. seems like a brand new book that needs to come out that is costing eighty seven dollars. You know, I brought it. You brought it up at the very beginning, and I, I promised to bring it back. Is um, storytelling? So, what's the importance of storytelling when it comes to that data? Oh, just data is boring. I mean, the, the ideal data is those, those points, those intuitive elements, those stories that we can't forget. But, you know, this I joke around with this on the book often, which is, you know, when you start writing a book, uh, people always ask you, like, what's it about? What's it about? And then you tell them, I learned this early on, like, what's it about? I'm like, writing a data book. (laughs) Oh, well, that sounds exciting. And you kind of know in the back of their mind, it's like, hey, I'll look at your cover and I may flip through a few pages, but I don't read data books. And it's kind of what I tell people. I don't read data books either. I mean, I have some on my shelf that I always tell myself I'm going to read, or they're like textbooks, which you never go back to. But in that precious time you have during the course of a day, do you really want to Hey, it's like, I have a mystery. I have a sci-fi. No, no, no. Let's read about sequel. Let's read about how to predict customer. Be- it doesn't happen. And so one of the things that I knew going into this type of book was that I needed to be able to tell stories that allow people to internalize the lessons, but also know how it connects to their own data, how it connects to their own life in a way that's easy for them to follow. Otherwise, what happens? Nobody reads it. You know, I think they said like, like 95% of books sell fewer than 5,000 copies in their lifetime. You're aware of these numbers. 
But it's the same thing that happens internally in businesses where companies create huge dashboards and charts. They aggregate all this information into these broad tables and they don't tell a story. And it, I, I'm, I'm always puzzled at the interpretation. Like people think, well, I'm going to send these people dashboards and they're going to sit and they're going to think about the story. They're going to think about the meaning and they don't. And so oftentimes what we expect is we expect the data to explain itself and tell itself into a story. It doesn't. And so arguably the most valuable skill inside data organizations is to say, do you have people that can actually tell these stories so that people can remember, so that they can translate it to their own work? And just as importantly, that they can add their own contributions back to that storyline to say, here's what our business should do going forward. And as, as straightforward as it sounds, so few companies do it. Yeah, and I think the other thing that people need to do is take that story be able to share it internally, but be able to share that across all departments. And then even being able to share it externally to, to organizations or to people. And because the more excited that people get based off of the product and services that you have or the data that you receive and tell out, then it's going to improve hiring. It's going to improve potentially customer retention. Uh, There's a whole lot of value that storytelling can provide. Um, So to all my listeners, this is not just a data book. Uh, this is the data-driven way to win customers' hearts. There's more to that than just a bunch of numbers. And I took a, uh, a ridiculous amount of notes. And there are some pictures in there too. So it's not just a bunch of uh, graph charts and SQL. <laughs> so go go do it and, and buy this book. And it's not just uh, a great cause for, for Neil to get rich quick scheme. It is for him to donate to all of the food pantries across the, across the country and um, highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I have two questions at the very end uh, for every single guest. And the first question is, is what book or person uh, in customer service or customer experience uh, ideally uh, have influenced you the most in the past year? So that's the first question. Sure. Uh, I would say that the um, the two books, they're kind of related, but I, I do enjoy them. One is um, a book that I always recommend to people, especially, you know, in my full-time role, um, How to Lie with Statistics. And now the book is a little bit dated. Like the thing they talk, they have examples like, and if you buy a home, a home should cost you $40,000. I'm like, what? Uh, so it is a little bit outdated, but the lessons that it has are powerful in the sense that it provides simple, illustrative examples about how people can take the same pieces of data and based on how they present it, tell much different stories. And it's meant for even a non-technical audience. But what I love about it is that it leads to more honest conversations in organizations where people can look and say, here are common techniques and tricks, sometimes unknowingly implemented, that would change the outcome of a story. And so it just allows them to almost build that critical thinking muscle when they're seeing information presented to them to say, is this in fact right? Or where are things to question? Where are things to have conversations about without having to go into the grittiness of the underlying math itself? The second book actually holds a very similar title. It's The Cartoon Guide to Statistics. Now, this sounds a little bit odd because people are like, statistics, a very serious thing. Uh, I remember when I was at UCLA for my master's where uh, I was working with a statistics professor and he, he started the course by holding up his textbook. He's like, this is the textbook for the course. It will cost you $270. It's available at the bookstore. He's like, this is a cartoon guide to statistics. It is $14.95 on Amazon and will probably teach you as much, if not more, than the textbook because you will open it. Now, they also, by the way, make the I think like the cartoon guide to like 
astrophysics and other things. But the reason why I appreciate it is it just it's a very way, a unique way of storytelling. And when if you're used to those academic textbooks that people have to read where it teaches you the theory behind it, and then you literally see a book full of illustrations, it's hard. You, part, part of you looking at it to be like, why can't other people tell stories in this way? And, and this ties back even to, to the purpose of my book itself, is that if the only takeaway from these types of materials is that these stories can be told in different ways and that there's compelling new ways to explain technical subjects, I think that's a great takeaway because once you see it, you're more willing to challenge other people in your organization, other people you come across with to challenge yourself to say, why can't we do slightly more of this? Why can't we have better stories? And so a lot of this is simply awareness of what great looks like so that you can kind of model and be inspired about your own work and kind of carry it forward to be like, look, look how easy a technical subject can be made. And then you no longer have patience for other people who are just going to regurgitate a whole bunch of technical jargon in a slide and say it's a presentation. I feel like I'm going to be on Amazon shortly looking for all of these ways that I can look at cartoons and astrophysics at the same time. You're going to look at it. It is, it is ridiculous to flip through this because you almost feel like you're like this statistics book is written for a small child and it's not. And once you start getting into it, you're like, you're technically explaining these concepts as well as, you know, some, some tenured professor at a major university who decided to write 14 or 15 pages just to explain what an average is. You're like, wow, this, why can't everyone be so great? And, and you realize that it's just, you have to draw people's attention to these stories that data is very hard to understand, but it doesn't have to be that way. Human behavior is hard, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so hopefully that book serves as well as these other books, examples of just how wonderful and how engaging these stories can be. Yeah. That's so awesome. So the, the second question I have for every single guest is you can leave a note to all customer service professionals, even customer experience professionals, if you want to expand it a little bit. And it's going to hit everybody's desk Monday at 8 a.m. What would it say? If I can hit everybody's desk, every customer service professional, that's the question. I, I would say, and this, this, is, this goes, if, 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 if you like, you're going to read the book and this stands out. This is still my favorite story is ask more questions of your customers because they're willing to provide it. I think oftentimes we relegate things to simple short form surveys, net promoter score. How likely are you to recommend us from a friend? And that's really not having a conversation. That's not getting to what you're really curious about. And I use it similar to a, use it similar to a job interview. When you go to a job interview, what you really want to ask the person, they always give you that moment at the end where they're like, what, what questions do you have for me? And you get some ridiculous things. I had one person one time when I was at, at Google, they, I was like, well, what questions do you have for me? And they're like, so, uh, can you tell me what's, what's Google's cloud strategy going to be for against Amazon and, and Microsoft? And I was like, like, hell if I know. Like, soon Sundar comes down from his office, hey, Neil, you want to check out our cloud strategy? I don't deal with cloud. But I also don't necessarily know how that's relevant. You're trying to impress me with the question. All right, there's a certain appreciation there. But really what I think is on the mind of every candidate they, they don't ask is, is how am I doing what are your thoughts? What are your concerns? You want that honest information because to be honest, a candidate's going to have a much better time if they knew what my objections were. In fact, I often ask this a little bit off topic to, to people whenever I'm interviewing for jobs or MBA students are asking, they're like, what question should I ask in an interview? I say, ask them what they don't like about other candidates. Then you're not putting them on the spot, but you're going to find out the deficiencies they see in their pool that you can address. But I think oftentimes we don't ask those questions of customers that we're genuinely curious about. And so I would ask them a bit of their questions about, well, how can they service? What are you asking for? My all-time favorite question, 
I'll tell you this is, what do you like about us? And I talk about this a lot just because this behavior is infinitely fascinating to me. But as it turns out, when we ask people questions and we draw their attention to specific items, uh, we get them to focus and pay attention to it, which makes sense. But you realize how much is missed. So oftentimes we don't form opinions on things until we're asked. So customer service agents that send people to surveys and say, what are things that we could do better? Gets them thinking about all the things they did wrong, which is kind of a wrong way to think about it. And that's why one of my favorite questions is, what are all the things you love about us? What are all the things we did right? Because it makes those ideas salient. It actually improves lifetime value. It's ridiculous to think about, but simply drawing people to the positives and asking them what they liked most about your service, about your product, about your company even in a retail setting, can improve lifetime value. And you think about it just from that question of asking them and thinking about the positive. And that's how easy it is. Like companies at Russell be like, God, if only I could get 1% or 2% more out of my customers. This on the retail side, I think drove like a 7 or 8% improvement from a single question. And so that's kind of the way the, the starting line for that memo is, remember the power of questions to ask more of you about what's on your mind from those customers and specifically ask them about what they love, what they love most about your company. Because not only will you feel good, but they'll feel better about your company. And chances are they'll translate into better better buying behaviors going forward. I love that question because you you make them, you get them to think, but it's also you give them the opportunity to voice what they like and what they don't like. And it makes them feel known and valued and saying, you know what, I'm part of this journey now. And when you're part of the journey, you're going to stay longer to see it out. That's it. You want to, you want to bring them into part of the process. And, and by the way, that goes beyond customer service. That even goes to how you engage them on the website, to anything that you're doing with your customers. The more they feel like they're involved, that it's for them, the more they reciprocate. Um, actually, and I'll, I'll bring you one more, and I know we're, we're, we're getting close to time here, but I, I need to show this one just, um, we can always edit it out if we want to. Uh, but even just some of the effects of showing people what's happening on a website. Uh, this was a, a fascinating study out of Harvard Business School where they looked at like those travel and dating websites where you, you search for somebody and it tells you, okay, we're searching a million potential partners or 50 million potential flights. They actually did a test one time where they showed people that work and another time where they gave them the exact same results, but no wait. And the people actually were happier with the results where they had to wait. So they had to wait upwards of a minute to get those results. But as long as they had the perception that the website was doing work on their behalf, they viewed the results as having more credibility and a greater sense of reciprocity and love for the company that generated them, as opposed to just showing you the same results right away, which they thought almost too easy. You certainly didn't think about the millions of flights it would be just for me. Uh, Those signals are meaningful, and that's just how we interpret them. When we talk about all this irrational human behavior, well, there you go. Yeah, their perception is their reality. Yeah, it's, all of us. Uh, uh, we are we are interesting human beings. That's that's for sure. Uh, Neil, thanks so much, man. I had a blast. Uh, converted the data driven way to win customers' hearts. To all my listeners, take stop this right now. Uh, go connect with Neil and buy his book. Um, and Neil, thanks so much. I had a blast and uh, looking forward to the success that you have and and what you have going on with this book. So thanks again. Hey, thanks again for having me, Nick. Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today? If so, please consider sharing this episode with them. And last, if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests, 
You can go to press1fornick.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Press One for Nick. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. Until next time, focus on your customers. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.